Tracy uses her skills as a highly trained CIA case officer to defuse a situation at home. Come back here. One second. I'm so sorry. She's leaving. Come back here. Come back. You have to put some pants on. It's 14 degrees outside. Can you put them under your dress? Can you put them? I'm sorry, guys. Can you, can you put them under your dress, please? I'm loving it. I'm loving Just go. It. It's fine. You want to get sick and die? Go ahead. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> We've all been down this road. Oh, my God. Yeah. Now, it, a fucking tank top dress. Welcome to Game of Crimes. I don't know if I read that. Uh, I, I know I didn't read Powell's book. I think I read part of Tennant's book, uh, but I may have forgotten. So what do you, what, how did he address that? How did uh, George Tennant address it in his book about the chart? Uh, that it was misused, that that was, I mean, he backs up basically what I say, right? That this is not <laughs> like how, um, this is not what the use of the chart was for. This is not, you know, what, I mean, that's basically what he's saying. Yeah, because they, they took it out of context and they made it fit a narrative that they were trying to achieve at the U.N., Right. So does he does he admit that it, obviously he wasn't aware of it? Colin Powell does later, you know, in his his life. I want to say he wrote it was like a New York Times op-ed or something by him about it. Um, look, I don't think Colin Powell changed the title of the chart. Like, I don't think he did that personally. I I don't. I'm never going to think that. I don't know who did. You want me to be? Completely honest with you. But, yeah. <laughs> That's what yeah. happens, though. Somebody takes it. It goes through all of these different layers. And at some point. It gets changed, but it is it is the equivalent of the Cuban Missile Crisis moment, where we're we're in the UN showing the pictures of Cuban missiles or Russian missiles in Cuba. This is kind of trying to do the same thing because this is right before uh, well, the United States goes into Iraq. So they're, what they're doing is the building the case, so to speak, right at the UN and around the world. And this becomes a key piece because the one thing they want to prevent Saddam Hussein from getting, and the other ones, right, are WMDs. Right. Yes. I mean, you're absolutely right. Man, had, when did you when did you first when did you first discover that the chart had been used? And then did you also know at the same time that it had been used incorrectly? So I think we did not realize to answer your question. Um, we did not realize that the chart was misused or going to be misused, I guess, until that moment, if you will. Did you know, though, it was going to be used? Had you no, received any kind no, of... No, okay. no, 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 no. You would never get that, right? Like, we had given so much intelligence. You you don't know what it's being used for. You just know, right? And, and oh, gosh, my division chief was just the most amazing human. And, you know, he, he would ask us for intelligence to give to the National Security Council. The, I mean, this was not a weird request. And you don't ask, like, who's going to want this? Who's going to... Like, you don't... You You're just so busy producing things because it's a requirement. Somebody says, hey, I need some information. Yeah, It's not. And I know that that sounds like reckless. It's really not. No, it's not reckless. It's like you're moving at a fast pace. <laughs> it's not my job. You know, my division chief, who is just I have so much respect for him. He is just the most amazing human. You know, we were giving human intelligence to the National Security Council. We were giving it to Condoleezza Rice. We were giving it, you know, that is not weird. That's our job, right, is to provide them with intelligence. So when a member of the Bush administration at the CIA won't let me say who it is, obviously I know who it was who asked for it, asked you for it, that's no different than any other day. 
right, that we had a request and I'm not going to say, hey, Mr. So-and-so, what are you using? Right. Like I would, I just assumed, oh, maybe they're the PDB briefers want this to, I, I, I don't know. I, we looked at it as, oh, great. Maybe we'll get more funding and more attention. For yeah. <laughs> right? I think that's kind of the way we looked at it was maybe people will care more or maybe we'll get more resources or maybe, right? Like, I think that's how we look at those things. So let's talk about this chart for a second. In terms of the amount of information on there, um, uh, you can see pictures of it. Um, and, and, you know, obviously we're on a podcast where we're describing it. What's that? Yeah, tell, tell us that it, if you were describing the, the chart, what does that look like if you were describing it to somebody? Heads. You know, it's like he, uh, people's, you know, from their head, neck up sort of situation um, that we had identified uh, with, Zark like I said, Zarqawi at the top. And then we sort of made branches off of that. Almost looks like a family tree, I guess maybe you could say. And we did it by geographic region so that whenever we were sent out, like let's say I was sent to Europe, we would know that these were like four guys who were responsible for things in Europe, right? And then we'd have their five pictures and their names and that kind of stuff. So it was, it was Arkawi at the top and then kind of geographically branched out, if that helps. Yeah. How many how many pictures were on this chart, if you remember? Oh, my God. I'd have to look it back up. Well, did um, you say more than 50, less than 50? No, 10, 10, 12. Okay. Uh, may, maybe. How did it, how did it trickle down to you that oh shit moment where they go they're using our chart and not only are they using our chart they're using it wrong how did that ended up trickling down Well so I guess this goes back to the how we don't have access to open internet and all of those things right at CIA so I did not have the oh shit moment until I went home that night right and you're watching Fox or CNN or you know whatever whomever is having the news cap of the day because I want to say it happened in the middle of the afternoon, the 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 briefing, some, something like that, um, happened kind of in the middle of the afternoon. And so I think um, that it would have been that night when we had the oh shit moment and none of us were working, right? Um, and so, and you don't have, you can't be texting your call, excuse me, did you see the chart, right? Like you're, you're not going to do that. And so it didn't, come back to us until like that morning, right? When we were all finally back in the office of like, <laughs> so you a six-year-old looking at me. Oh, well, wave back to her. Say hello. <laughs> you have to go get dressed, baby. I'm so sorry. Don't this is This is fun. Yeah. <laughs> so badly, like I said, we have a snow day. Come here, please. You have to get dressed. I'm shipping her off to a friend's house, but I can't do it until the ice melts. So that's Tell it melts. Yeah. <laughs> this yeah. Is so... You need to go get dressed and brush your teeth. Okay. <laughs> We're parents. We know what you're talking about. <laughs> i tell you what, my kids have all grown up, but this morning, like I said, I'm doing, I'm on three, uh, doing three news hits. So I'm at my desk. I've got my key lights on. I don't have kids anymore, but what I have is cats and my cats and Steve, you've seen them. They walk across my desk. <laughs> I, 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 I get, I get the tail in my nose and mouth and I'm like, I got to, you know, get oh, the God. cat hair out of it. And it's like, right before I got 30 seconds before I go, my one cat decides to walk across this. I had to pick her up, put her out of the oh, office, close yeah, the no, doors. You can't. I just, I feel very badly. I, w I wanted to tell you ahead of time, but I'm like, you know what? Forget it. It's not going to make a difference anyways. It is what it is. And hopefully you guys are okay with that. Don't think I'm unprofessional. I'm really not. No, no, no. We're, we are just, we are a family friendly podcast. I Absolutely. Did this? I drop her off at seven forty. You know, I would be back at eight, eight to eleven. I pick her up. Right, like not a problem. Yeah. 
We just call it Murphy's Law. Yep. Just what happens. <laughs> so um, how... So I want to ask you a couple questions. So the other thing, you come in the next morning, that's when you find out about it. So let's talk about how you found out about it. But then what I really want to understand is, in your mind, how much did they rely on that in order to make their case? In other words, like, say, mm-hmm. like you're presenting a case to a jury. Mm-hmm. Is this like one of the big pieces of evidence that if you don't have it, it doesn't tie it together? Is it a, you know, is it a, that's is a it a question? And I feel so egotistical answering it. Because no, we want you to answer it. I, I mean, know, that's. But it feels like you don't want. Hey, if you did good work, you did good work. I mean, how much do you think they relied on it? It's not good work because it's not, wasn't used accurately, right? No, it was your good work. (laughs) It was your good work. Right. It was misrepresented. Misrepresented. Uh, Look, I actually think that chart was a huge thing that presents, that really drove the case home because the reality is, is people are visual, right? Like everyone is a visual learner. You can get up there on the floor of Congress, the floor of the UN. And, you know, if you sit there and talk for out, no one wants to listen to that. Right. And so I think when you have this chart with just heads, right. And maybe some phone numbers, they had actually blurred those out, but it's still, you still had the heads. Um, you, it was a huge, especially at that time, <coughs> excuse me, what, 2003 and four, Al-Qaeda is still fresh on America's mind, right? We're still upset um, about everything that happened. And I think when you tie Al-Qaeda and Iraq together in a way like that, I think it was instrumental in pushing us towards. Wow. I think that's a very, very fair assessment. So let's talk about the discussion to the extent you can, I, I know that profanities aren't classified. So, how did that conversation go that morning? You all come in and you go, "Do you see what happened? Do you see the chart?" You know, I think um, there wasn't like a lot of profanities and screaming. That's not. I don't remember that. I never remember a time at the agency, and maybe that's why I am the way that I am. I don't get crazy. People are always shocked by how calm I am in very crazy situations. Maybe that's just who I am. But no, I mean, I think. We were, our oh shit came actually not, this is going to sound awful because I by no means mean to belittle anyone that that lost their life or a loved one that fought in the Iraq war. I I have people I know that that passed away in, in that war. For us, it was less about the war because you have to remember, we weren't really in the thick of it yet, right? Like we hadn't gone to the war yet. Um, and so it was actually less about the war and more about, and this sounds selfish, and I don't mean it to, our oh shit was like, we are going to lose our human assets that gave us these people. That was our oh shit. Sources our, and methods. You're just now outing some die. sources. They're going to die. All of our human that we worked so long to get, these people could die, right? And because of this information that's now out there, or we've now lost the location of these people that we knew. And they might go underground and commit attacks. So that was our oh shit. And I know I don't mean to say, you know, I don't, we didn't care about the rock war. Clearly we did. It was just that wasn't, like I said, our our area of expertise at the time. You know, and, and we, so Tracy, we, we try to stay apolitical and this is not an attack on either side of the aisle, but it is a great example about how people in those positions will utilize whatever... 100%. assets they have available to them to reach their own 
oh, mission. They're on objectives. I not agree with you more. And it's funny. I'm actually a registered independent. I don't I don't really care putting my political views out there. So I have voted for Republicans. I have voted for Democrats. And, um, you know, it was a good and I think this isn't just to slam the Bush administration, because in my book, I talk very highly about him. I, I actually like Bush and I fully supported our invasion into Afghanistan. I still do. Um, and I think it's in a way maybe shows people that you can look at things apolitically. It's not just black and white about, I, I think Democrats use information that way. I think Republicans use information that way. I think it's across the board. And that's, and see, to me, that's the one, that's the one, that's the danger, right? Because you already have a narrative in your mind, you have a context, and now you want to find information to fit the context, the narrative you want to get out there. And that's what happens as opposed to, I, I go back to your paper you wrote um, about China, Divorce yourself from everything. Look at it through the eyes of the adversary. What would our adversary do? Do you think? Do you think Bin Laden, or do you think at this point with everything going on in the Ukraine, Vladimir cares if it's a Republican or a Democrat in office? They don't care. Not We're the only know. ones that care about we that. Care. Yeah, I mean that's that's the thing is that we are the only ones that care about that stuff, and it's so. The one good thing I've gotten about my book is people are like, "Wow, you don't have like a political vendetta." I don't. Like, I really don't. <laughs> I'm mean to Democrats. I'm mean to Republicans. I'm nice to Democrats. I'm nice to Republicans. <laughs> I don't really have a vendetta, you know, um, at all. And so that's not the core crux of my book. And I, I lay it out there. I think Bush did some amazing things. In fact, I think I even say that I'm glad he was president on September 11th. I believe I say that in my book and that I'm glad it wasn't Gore um, who was president on September 11th. But I'm also going to be honest about the Iraq information as well. So, you know. Um, Again, see, that's the happen. The, the intelligence gets perverted as opposed to the purpose of intelligence is to support an informed decision making. But when you take it out of context. Yep. You know, uh, anyway, but that's wow. How. um How did that change how you thought about sharing information then from that? I know you still had to do it right, but. Did you start going back and looking at other types of information you shared to go, has this been used? Has this been used? So I don't think we had time to necessarily do that necessarily, which sounds careless, but I don't, I think our time was like, oh my God, we have to recover this, right? Like we have to, um, and, and so I think then our division chief basically was like, we are not sharing information with anyone anymore. Y'all can go fuck yourselves. I think was kind of like his thing after that, after it had been misused, because the reality is, is up until that point, nothing had been misused, really, that we had given, to my knowledge, right? I don't, look, I'm sure there's things I don't know about um, that happened, but but to the best of my knowledge and to my group's knowledge, there is no information that was, like, misused um, at that time. This is, this is significant, though, because this really swayed a lot of opinions in, on Capitol Hill. Yep. You know, we ended up in a war. It was the equivalent, like I said, of the Cuban Missile Crisis. Here's our evidence. Here's our pictures. Here's our stuff. You know, you went. Except that was used correctly, right? That was. So. But that the difference there too. There were pictures of a of a. I mean, you could see a rocket. You could see a missile. That was easy to figure out, right? But when you're now looking at links and stuff, now now things that would should have been objective, like the missiles, that becomes very subjective. And if somebody takes the wrong context for that subjective information, you guys have done the analytical work. You put it together. You know, can you be sure about everything? No, but nothing is 100% sure. But if you put enough pieces together, overwhelmingly, you go, we're very confident. We have high confidence that this is what's going on. I, I, I agree. And I'll be honest, I was very surprised CIA let me put it in the book. Um, but they did. I think they did it for a reason. You know, I, I think <laughs> I think that was a way of kind of going, no, 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 no. See, we were right.
Yeah, I, I do. Well, I 100% think. And it's funny because the, the CIA gets shit on a lot, right? You know, and there's all these conspiracy theories. They manufacture the war. They No, it's not they. We're literally just getting giving you this raw intelligence. <laughs> like, you know, and so it's it's maybe it was good that they allowed. I was very shocked. That was not a chapter I had to fight for, which was. Hey, and real quickly, let me tell folks to you guys, can, you folks can go to tracywalder.com. You know, the book is called The Unexpected Spy from the CIA to the FBI, My Secret Life Taking Down Some of the World's Most Notorious Terrorists. We keep talking about the book and you talk about there is a process people go through at the agency and other ones, the publication review board. You were shocked that you said you didn't get pushback on that. How long did it take you from the submission of the transcript until you got final approval back? How long is that? How long was that process? Yeah, so I credit two of my friends who they are analysts and they wrote books before me. Um, and they, gosh, I want to say they they sent their books in 2014 and it took them three years to get them cleared. <laughs> they had to sue the agency actually to get them cleared. Oh, jeez. Yeah. And so I credit them. As a result, the whole publication review board was replaced. They replaced them with new people. And um, I had an easier time. Um, and so it just took me a few months, but when I first got it back, uh, I had eight chapters that were fully redacted. So what, how, how many, eight, eight chapters that were fully redacted. So what you see is the result of five full rewrites of the book. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> that had to be more frustrating than a two day polygraph session. No, I was actually really excited because my two friends and their dear, dear friends, they had had their books like denied publication and I did not get that. So I was actually happy. <laughs> did, did you have to, uh, so when we wrote our book, Javier and I, you know, we sent it through the DEA, uh, publication review board and they came back with, I think, I think eight or 10 suggestions and, and they were minor, you know, and we incorporated most of them. One, they want, they thought it was a good idea for us to let CIA have a shot at our book and that one we didn't do, but did they ask you to put a publication review board number in your book, a tracking number? No. So the CIA doesn't work like that. My book has, um, there's a paragraph, like in one of the first um, pages, see if I can find it, that says that it has gone through. It's uh, Yeah, it's right at the very front in the forward. Yeah. This claimer right there. And it just. And it's, it's funny because we have the same publisher, St. Martin's Press. Oh, yay. I love yeah. that. Yeah. Oh, look at this. All of these spooks and spies and. Uh, We're all coming um, together. Everybody in in one place. Yeah, half my neighborhood uh, when I first moved out here. That's the other funny thing, too, I want to talk about. The one thing that used to, you, you could tell real, I mean, ones that you had the feeling about, you go, yeah, you, you got to be doing that kind of work versus the ones that they're just posers. A lot of times you run into people, <laughs> I can't tell you what I do, it's classified. Well, you're a moron because no, nobody walks around out here saying that. They, you know, most of the time when you have a cover, you go, I'm at the State Department, I'm at DOD, you yeah. know? Oh. But, you know, and I, I just on a little side story here, like we always do, um, after retirement, I got bored. So I started doing background investigations for OPM. And because of my security and, clearances. And Steve, OPM, there's an acronym again. Office other people's money. <laughs> other people's money. <laughs> they were giving me other people's money to go out and do background checks. Tracy's got it. But it was funny because I had the security clearances. So most of mine were contractors with the agency. And it was amazing. And most, and there were some active employees as well, but it was amazing, especially the older folks at the agency were so reluctant to talk to me and their positions honestly were 
support positions there. You're not going to know who the operators are. You're not going to know who the Intel analysts are, those kind of people. You know, you might have the accounting people or the secretarial support, and there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not ditzing those people, but it was like pulling teeth to get, I would usually have to call their supervisor in and have them explain that if you don't answer the man's questions, you're not going to get your security clearance re-upped and you're going to be looking for a job. But we also found out that that's the way the agency indoctrinated their people. So they weren't doing anything wrong. They were doing what they'd been told to do. It wasn't easy, though. <laughs> and that's why by the time you hear this podcast, we have had to redact and edit it 47 times to get the clear version out. No, <laughs> We actually recorded this two years ago. <laughs> two years ago. It finally got final approval. Um, yeah. Well, so... But at some point, you were at the agency, and I kind of want to start getting in now to the other side of the story. What what were the conditions that led you to start thinking about differently about the work you were doing? In other words, you were traveling, you were gone all the time. I mean, it was a hectic pace. What made you decide to pick up that, uh, like you say in the book, too, you pick up the FBI application? You weren't really considering it at that time. It was still a few more months. But what made you start that thought process that says, hey, maybe I've got to look at doing something different? So I was sick of living overseas, right? I just... The pace was extremely frenetic. And, you know, a lot of times people leave a job because they hate their boss or their colleagues. And it wasn't like that for me. I left on like crazy good terms, right? Like, I mean, I got even a monetary award when I left. You know, they it was just a really great place to work. But I made a very mature decision and was like, well, I don't want to live overseas anymore. The CIA's mission is to gather intelligence overseas. Therefore, I should look for another job. So I, I actually felt like I made a mature decision, quite frankly, um, to to leave because that's never going to change. That's their mission. What was the longest period of time that you were out of the country before you got to come back? Like four months, five months. Yeah. Maybe. And, and that's not in one location, is it? You're no. constantly moving. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's tough. I mean, it's you know, it sounds exciting, but the truth is, it's not. It's, yeah, it's but kind you still had to engage you. in some self care because I remember you saying in the book you had to call your mom to say, "Hey, make an appointment. I got to get a root touch up. I got to do this. I got to do that." Now, <laughs> still had to take care of stuff even when you came back. When you were back, how long were you back before you would go back out again? Sometimes two weeks. Sometimes four weeks. Right? Like, um, when the chart came out, I think I had been back. That was like week three of being back from somewhere. And then I went again, you know, someplace else a week later. So it was just, you know, um, but yeah, I'm unapologetically female. <laughs> I don't. Hey, that's, you got to do that. That's, that's why, that's the part I loved about it is in spite of all of these places you're going and the things you're doing, you still come back and you go, nope. Well, that didn't serve me well at the FBI, but it served me just fine at the CIA. Well, yeah. And we'll what talk a, about that here. What a great transition <laughs> phrase. It, yes. You know, yes. Had you known then what you know now. Um, <laughs> so let's talk about that. So you're 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 getting tired of doing all this travel. Uh, you, why the bureau? Why not? Um, because I just thought, and we had agents detailed to us, you know, in the counterterrorism center. Sorry. No problem. Tap dancing in her room. Um, the, <laughs> the, um, the uh, FBI worked counterterrorism, right, at that point now, um, but they worked at stateside. So I thought, okay, this will be a great way to be in the States and work something I love. So that that's why I picked it. And just as a, a way of explanation for our listeners, the CIA it, is not allowed to work inside the United States against Americans, correct? Correct. And then the FBI, because you, you have that void, the FBI picks up the that missing part and they, they work domestic international terror, or they work in international terrorism domestically. 
So just so our listeners understand the difference between the two. And, and folks, there are some great books out there talking about, you know, especially at the height of the Cold War when they were running um, um, agents. And by the way, too, I want to talk about terminology because everybody gets it wrong. People refer to you, they say you're a CIA agent, and that's mm -hmm. incorrect terminology. Let's set the world straight. In fact... Uh, we were talking, we both know Dan Hoffman. Dan knows a guy uh, named Jim Olson, who used to be chief of station in Vienna and stuff. He wrote a book, and basically he teaches a course at the George Bush Center for Intelligence, or down at uh, the the college there at uh, 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 Texas, or uh, yeah, Texas Tech, I think, yeah. No, Texas A&M, Texas A&M. It is a flunkable offense in his course if you refer to somebody incorrectly as an agent. So let's let's get the terminology yeah, on so the table. <laughs> CIA officer is probably what you want to refer to people as. FBI, you can refer to people as an agent. And in CIA parlance, what is an agent in your parlance? There aren't agents. There's... No, I mean, like, but like agents would be like a, somebody that's spying for you or somebody that you might have in place. Did you um, guys refer? Yes, agents would be people, assets that we're trying to assets, get information yeah. from. Yeah. Yeah, so if anybody tells you that they're a CIA agent, you may arrest them on site. No. Yeah, if yeah. anyone tells you they're a CIA agent, they don't work for the CIA. No, they right. don't. I can, right. yeah. So anyway, yeah. that was that was fun to get that out. So, um, no, the reason I was saying that is because there are some great books, especially about the Cold War and a lot of the spies that uh, we were running, even Russia, but you would be working them, the CIA would be handling them over, like, say, in Russia, but they would get a posting to come to the embassy here in Washington. And so they had to hand off between the CIA actually had to hand off to the FBI and have them take over, uh, you know, when the asset got into the United States. So, I mean, there's all of these people think that, oh, they just run them the whole time. No, that was the tough part too, because you'd spend time developing an asset and you'd have to turn it. If, if they came over to the United States, you'd have to turn them over and let somebody else run with them. Yeah. Yeah, believe it or not, I was in Afghanistan when I learned the difference between the the officers versus agents, not realizing that an agent was an asset. Oh, and we were no. we were at the facility in Kabul when that was uh, explained to me. <laughs> Kabul, also known as Kaboom, uh, things yeah. going on. So, but let's so you finally you you pick up that you want to go to the bureau. You've got the uh, application. How long before you actually act on that? From the time you pick it up to you, I mean, you know, roughly. What, what are you looking oh, at? I don't remember. I truly don't remember. I'm so sorry. No, but but like in terms of months, just like a few months. Maybe a few months, ish. I'm sorry. Was there one precipitating thing that said, "Hey, I'm I'm filing this now, or I'm applying now," or was it just kind of you finally got around to it? Said I need to apply. I think I finally got around to it. I don't remember one event. I think a logical person, knowing your background now, hearing the first half of your story, would think, well, that's a simple transition. Mm -hmm. Was it? No. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I see you smiling there. <laughs> well, it's a huge it's a huge cultural change, too. It's a huge difference in mission and how you handle things. So um, now walk us through that process now. Um, I mean, you're, you obviously got a lot more experience. You, you've got, you can see things coming that you may not have, you know, when you applied for the agency. Was there anything that was really different from what you thought it would be when you applied for the Bureau? No, it was very easy because I was, I mean, I'm sure it took some people years. I'm pretty sure it took me like six weeks, right? Like Because wow. you know, they just come to CIA headquarters, interview me. I already had a clearance. I already had like, there's what the background and everything was done right? pretty like, much. There's nothing. That's what takes a long time. And I already had all of it. They just buy it and transfer it uh, from mm -hmm. the agency. So, uh, so you get, um, you know, you go through, when does, how long does it take for you from the application till you're actually at the uh, academy? 
I don't remember probably a few months. I really just don't, I don't specifically remember that. I'm so sorry. No, no, no. That's, that's look, it's everything happens. Murph can't remember what he did yesterday, except he fell asleep out on the beach and got sunburned. Did you do that again? Uh, yes. No, not yesterday. We had a party here. Come back here. One second. I'm so sorry. She's leaving. Come back here. Come back. You have to put some pants on. It's 14 degrees outside. Can you put them under your dress? Can you put them? I'm sorry, guys. Can you can you put them under your dress, please? I'm loving it. I'm loving Just go. It. It's fine. You want to get sick and die? Go ahead. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> We've all been down this road. Oh my god. Yeah. Now a fucking tank top dress. <laughs> That's one of our granddaughters. She's five years old. She's doing. She does the same thing. And a jacket, and no jacket. (laughs) She's a. She wants to be a California girl. It's fourteen degrees outside. (laughs) At my age, I've been. You know, I'll put on my leather jacket. I've got a scarf. You know. You know. Get out. It's cold right now, and you'll see kids walk into the high school here, like you say, pair of shorts and flip flops, and it's like. I know. I know. Do you want to die? (laughs) Okay. We're not laughing at you. We're laughing with We're you. We're laughing with you. We've all been through this. <laughs> it's okay. Just go. Just go. <laughs> all right. Oh, Family drum. Hey, laugh. look, if you thought getting through the CIA was tough, try to get a six-year-old ready to go to her friend's oh, house. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> Applying for the FBI was much easier than this, wasn't it, Tracy? <laughs> <laughs> Just wait till number two comes along. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, I'm not. Well, she's one and done. That's it. One and done. That's it. <laughs> You ruined it. I was surprised we had. Yeah. A, actually, if I'd been the first child, we never would have had. My parents never would have had more kids. So, <laughs> <laughs> when I, I talk about it in my book, I we can't. So she's our little miracle. Yeah. yeah. No, that's great. That's great. Um, All right. So back to our regularly scheduled podcast, talking about the FBI. So, like I said, pretty easy to get in. Um, you get the offer. Did you have any reservations? Did you did you think about pulling your application? Did you think, nah, I, I want to stay at the agency? Or were, were you pretty set at that point that, hey, I'm going to go join the Bureau? I was pretty set. I didn't have, there was no reason to have any reservations. Okay. Had, had you worked with FBI agents before? Uh-huh. Uh, so they were all, um, I think it was Doug Miller and Mark Rossini uh, were both detailed to our office. And uh, they were great. I mean, I had zero issues with them. I had always had a really pleasant working relationship with them. And I had no reason to think that, right, like, I, I never had any issues dealing with right. them. So what year did you report to the FBI Academy? Four, 2004-ish. Yeah. And you, and you received that same reception when you arrived there, didn't you? i gotta tell you this is the part of the book that kind of pissed me off yeah it pisses most people off (laughs) so what was your reception when you got there um you know and i think you guys have gotten to know me now i am by no means like an egotistical person who puffs my chest up and talks about the things that i've done so i went in there pretty quiet you know not uh so you know my first day at quantico you have to go around and introduce yourself right like this is who i am this is where i worked this is what i did um and i went around introduced myself and said i worked at cia and they didn't believe me (laughs) now so when you say they are you talking about your classmates or the staff both and and isn't it? I sound like a defense attorney on the on the witness stand. Isn't it reasonable to expect that the staff would have seen your file, your your background file? They did. They just chose to. My the head of Quantico at that time 
was a dick. I don't know any other way to put it. And he had some kind of beef with the CIA, clearly just didn't like the agency in some way, shape or form. And that's fine. He's entitled not to like the agency. But I think he took that like all out um, on on me. Yeah, and you know what? We had problems with the CIA when we were in Columbia, but you don't indict the entire agency. We had problems with the FBI throughout my career. You don't well, indict the whole agency. Steve, we talked about it. It's like when we talked about um, uh, Victor Avila and with HSI. Victor was the HSI agent who was shot. His partner was killed down in Mexico. And we said it's agencies aren't bad. Agencies are, are, are institutions. It's the leadership. You can have a great right. agency and a bad leader or a bad agency and a great leader. I say it's all about leadership. I happened to work Absolutely. at the agency at the time. I had a great leader at the agency. I had great bosses there. But this guy was a terrible leader. And kind of to Steve's point, I'm not going to indict the whole FBI. I do not think the whole FBI is like that. I have met agents who are really good people. But he made me pay for maybe he wanted to work at the CIA and didn't get it. I don't know what his problem was. I never cared enough to ask. But, yeah. Yeah, it, it, which creates a horrible environment. I mean, you, you uh, have I mean, been. I'll never forget at the end of the academy about a week before I was set to graduate. I got hauled into his office again for I have no idea what reason because I had passed everything. And him saying, you know. I had my reservations about letting you graduate, but I've called my people at the agency now, the people I know there, and they've all checked you out. So it will go ahead and like, let you graduate. I'm like, mm, first of all, wasn't aware that that was part of my fulfillment for graduation. And second of all, yeah, I worked there. I don't, I don't like, why is this? <laughs> like, I'll never forget that. Well, not to mention you have been serving your country honorably doing things that, the vast, vast majority majority of Americans will never participate in or even know about. But instead of him being appreciative about that, I yes. felt like, why does this young girl get to do these things? And I never did. Like, that's how I think he felt. And that was really frustrating. And it wasn't limited to him. The other instructors were, were coming down on you pretty hard. And you're in your own classmates. I mean, I, please, listeners, go read her book. It's just... You got it. It's you know what's disgusting. What's disgusting is that it's supposed to be one team, one mission. We all might wear a different uniform, but it's the United States of America. We've been attacked. We're trying to fight terrorism. We're trying to fight crime. We're trying to fight this transnational stuff. And you know, it just some of this the stuff just rises to the level of pettiness to where you go. Why right. are you in a leadership position when you absolutely have no leadership skills? And I don't know if it's the screw up, move up mentality. I don't know if it's, uh, you know. I think part of it is screw up, the screw up, move up. Yeah. Um, what are we going to do with them? Well, we can't ship them off. Let's promote them and make them somebody else's problem. <laughs> yeah. And, and you know what? A true leader would have nipped that in the bud right in the beginning. And you, you've got your staff coordinator and your class counselors in there recognizing what's going on from your classmates. A leader would have come into the class and said, sit your asses down here. Okay. I'm, and I would do it right in front of you. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't. I wouldn't ask you to be excused, and I would put a stop to that right then and let everybody know. I mean, they're not going to get into details about what you did, but what you're telling them is 100% accurate. So they need to get over themselves, quit being so damn pompous, and let's move forward. I thank you. I I, would, I appreciate that, and it, it's funny because I've made the, everyone always asks me why you know this happened, and I said it's because it's a failure in leadership. That that's what I think. Amen. And, 
And I think that um, when we got our assignments, I think it's like week 10, you get your assignments-ish. I can't, I can't remember the exact week. And I felt pretty confident that I was going to go to the LA office. No one wanted it. <laughs> like Usually if you pick like the top three offices, like LA, San Francisco, New York, you're going to go there because no one else wants to go there. So I felt like, okay, when I open up this envelope, like I'm going to LA, you know, I felt pretty confident about that. But when it said that I was actually going to an RA, which is a resident agency, which is an even smaller office, um, there was a guy in my class who was also going to an RA. No one said anything about him going to an RA, but I'll never forget, I can't say his name, but the head of the academy at the time, you know, he was in that room when we all were opening our envelopes. And he's like, when I got an RA, he's like, Tracy, I'm just going to need you to leave for a second because I, I need to fathom the fact that they would put someone like you like in an RA. Oh my god! I remember just going to the bathroom and I cried because I was like, what the fuck just happened here? Like, what? I don't know. I didn't pick an RA. You can't pick an RA. They like assign you to it. I picked LA. That was the office I picked. Fully expecting that that was where I was going to go. And I couldn't even be happy, right? Like that I was going there. I think that's what why did he, why did, so a lot of folks, the distinction may be lost on them because you've got your field offices and you've got your resident agencies. What was he having such heartburn about, about you getting assigned to an RA? Typically, new, new agents don't go directly to an RA, typically. because They go they, to a field office? Because they're smaller, right? And so you kind of have to be more of a jack of all trades. And Okay. Like I had no expectations that I would go to an RA. I was just as shocked, quite frankly, as my instructor was. I mean, I was, wasn't expecting that. Um, and yeah, I, I, it was so upsetting. <laughs> um, you know, some of my best, I, I've got some fantastic friends that are FBI, retired FBI. So that, again, please don't accept, you know, listeners don't accept this as an indictment of the agency. It's just one jerk. Of the agents of the right. bureau. Again, it goes back to people. Look, right. we've had some fantastic people on your former boss, Michelle Linhart. Yeah. Fucking awesome. You know, Absolutely. Sherry Oz, you know, <laughs> Pam Barnum. And now we, we, you know, we've had, we've had, uh, uh, we, we've had, see the one thing too, that's the other thing we tried to guard against too, because we want to take our blinders off. People thought you get a couple of old stuffy white guys like us. That's all we would interview is other stuffy white guys, you know? Yeah. No, no, but I'm, I'm just being candid. It's like, there's actually a phrase for it because I was working on a series with a buddy of mine who produces stuff for one of the network uh, the, the, the networks, and we were putting a series together called Inside True Crime. Well, I think it was a great idea what we were doing. Nobody else was doing. But they go, oh, you're just a jog, just another white guy. And so I was immediately cut out from consideration because, look, I, 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 was, I made the final cut for uh, one of Dick Wolf's new series um, called Hunted. They were actually going to put teams in the field and actually go hunt fugitives. And I made the cut and COVID hit. But one of the things that was going against me, what? I was just another white guy. And I'm like, yeah, I get that. But you know, the thing that pisses me off about this is that, w w anyway, what I was saying is that we have tried to open the um, uh, the kimono and let, we, we've had money launderers on here. We had George Young, who was Pablo's business partner. I mean, we are working to get every side of it. And some of the best guests we have, I'll tell you that, you know, besides you, the other person I'm really scared of is Pam Barnum. She dove out of a car at 25 miles an hour while they were doing an operation against the Hells Angels in Canada, did a shoulder roll and ended up because they thought she thought she was about to get whacked. I'm going, <laughs> If I, I have a problem getting up my steps, you know, in, in one piece. So, I mean, we just have nothing but the ultimate respect for people who do the job right. and who are competent regardless of age, race, sex, you know, whatever it is you do. And, that's, and one other th little comment I want to make by, by doing all that, and, and I always use this as, as 
an explanation to, to people that worked in my office. When you had petty issues like this, tell me today, how have we served the taxpayers of the United States of America? How much time <laughs> do we really waste? That's, how, I mean, much did we, how much bullshit did we waste today because of your little petty attitudes? <laughs> and you're right. I don't want to indict the whole FBI. I, I, I know some amazing FBI agents. All I can speak of, though, is my lived experience, right? And so... It was day. horrific. <laughs> it's terrible. Well, and, you know, on behalf of the taxpayers, I'm sorry you went through that. But, hey, you know what? Um, let's get into the fun stuff because you, you, get, you get into this and... I think your experience, the other thing, here's what I believe. I believe some of the other people are jealous because you can use the joke too. We used to use the joke too in, in, uh, or in Virginia. It's like, what do people that go to uh, UVA and Virginia Tech have in common? They both applied for UVA. UVA. Um, you know, use your, so, you know, some of these guys may have applied for the agency and not got hired, but I will tell you, I think um, your experience, I mean, this is a duh, your experience has given you an insight. None of those other new recruits, none of the other new agents had and to me, I'm looking. If I were a supervisor, if I were somebody looking to build my squad, I'd be all over it, going, "I, I want her because of your worldview, your ability to look at stuff." I think that served you well, um, because you. I mean, it's not like they put you on the fraud squad or chasing down fugitives. You got into some good stuff. They actually didn't put me on the counterterrorism squad, and I found out later when I had resigned from the bureau. I received a phone call from this guy who was one of the most horrific to me um, at the academy. And they didn't put me on the counterterrorism squad at that RA because he had told the bosses of that squad all of these rumors and whatever about me. And that's really uh. disturbing. So let's not put someone who served overseas, you know, in all of these positions on a squad because of what some upset guy <laughs> said. Uh his feelings got hurt. We should give him a cookie and maybe he'll feel better, you know, instead of, hey, let's go find bad people who are threatening to do bad things to the United States. Maybe that's a mission we could get behind. When he found out I resigned, I will say he did call me and want me to come back um, and basically admitted that it was like all his fault. Some of the treatment um, that you I- You know why? Because you were making him look good. You were doing good work. Wow. It's like, oh, wait a minute. Yeah, but well, there, there's another tactic of, of horrible leaders, embarrass you in public, apologize in private. That's not that's the way bullshit. to do it. Yeah. That's true. Well, but let's, in spite of in spite of the uh, shortcomings of some of the leadership, you actually, like you said, you weren't assigned to the counterterrorism, but you got involved in the, the, in one of the other cases we want to talk to you about, and it's uh, it's some a uh, couple of Chinese spies. A am I pronouncing the name right? Chi Mok. Chi Mac. Chi Mac. Yeah. Um, let's talk about this. So, when you were assigned to the resident agency, where was that RA at? Santa Ana, so Orange County, California. Yeah. Nice hour. area, huh? That's where I'm from. Oh, oh, nice. You, nice. Did you go back home and live with mom and dad? I did. Sure <laughs> did. Yeah. Oh, hey, real quickly, too, before we get into that, what was the pay differential between where you were at the agency and then coming onto the bureau? About the same? I mean, that probably could have been part of the problem because you have to remember when you transfer within a government agency, they have to honor where you're at. So I was at a GS 13 at CIA, which oh. is. Oh. Yeah. And most agents come in as what, a nine? Eight. Eight? 
Um, At 13 is a journeyman level for law enforcement, federal law enforcement. Exactly. And so, um, and at the CIA, that was basically managerial, pre-managerial is kind of where I was at. You have to remember, I was promoted super quickly because everything was happening with the counterterrorism. And so we were all promoted very quickly. And so they didn't bring me in as a 13 because they can't, but they had to match my step as a 13, if that makes Mm, any sense. Yeah, they had to pay you. Yeah. Salary. So I made a lot more than... um, you know, my colleagues did, but they didn't know that. I never, why in God's green earth would I tell them that? Like, you know, but my, my, the head of the Academy had to have known that I would imagine oh, yeah. right? because he would have had all of that. And so maybe that was another problem um, that he had. I don't, I don't know. Um, well, let, let's get past this guy's obvious shortcomings and let's talk about the fun <laughs> stuff, which is this case. So yeah. Start setting this context for us. How do you start getting involved with this kind of work and this case? Because this is actually on the heels of a lot of uh, espionage that's going on right now. I mean, I think I just heard uh, Director Ray say in some testimony, they're opening up a new case on espionage from China like every 12 hours. Yeah, um, that's true. I I heard him uh, testifying. I think it was to Congress about that. Um, And, you know, I think this is before that was cool, though, right? So uh, we uh, I was put on the CI or counterintelligence squad, if you will. Um, And I worked. It was a Chinese counterintelligence case um, involving this these this guy, Chi Mac, who worked at a defense contracting company. Um, And he was stealing. um, It sounds silly, but radar cloaking paint. Um, so he was stealing paint that would be used on submarines, um, ships, those kinds of things, and then uh, to make them invisible to radar, as well as our QED or quiet electric drive technology, which made, um, you know, which it, it made submarines and their propellers quieter. Right. So you it, the whole idea of stealthiness, I guess, is, is kind of what he was stealing uh, and, and giving back to China. You know, and what's amazing is how does, um, I I guess that's part of the vetting process to even get the clearance, but you go, how does somebody like that get clearance? But people go, why are they stealing this? You know, a lot of the, a lot of the people that China has in place, they don't know what they're collecting. Somebody else above has the idea of how they're piecing it all together. It's a mosaic, right? A piece here, a piece there. Somebody above them starts seeing the big picture, but why would you steal paint? Because you can reverse engineer it. You can do analysis. You can start seeing what the properties are and it saves the Chinese uh, communist party tons of money and tons of time on research and development. Right. Why bother when you can just take it? When you can rob it and replicate it and replace it. Um, So uh, I know that part of this lead came out of a previous espionage case, right? You guys got onto that. I think it was Greg Chun or um, trying to think, I just spaced out the name, but I thought, uh, anyway, I was kind of looking at the history of this. Um, But this is, this is a unique case because you've, I mean, there's people think counterintelligence, what are you guys doing? It's like, you're spying on people. Well, yeah, you're spying on spies, you know? Absolutely. Damn, I want people spying on spies. You're protecting the public. Yeah. This is a long-term case, right? I mean, how long does this case go on and, and start getting us into the details of it now? It probably went on about three or four years in full, not super, super long. Um, there have been issues because there was an agent out of the LA office and I forgot his name. I'm so sorry. Um, but he began an affair with his asset, <laughs> Chinese asset. And, oh, and was, that's a bad move. That's not yeah, good. And he was handing her um, information. And so that's when they moved the CI squad out of the LA office and into the Orange County office, which is fine. Um, because technically, Ty and Chi Mac were operating in LA County, not Orange County. But um, they didn't want them 
because uh, this had happened just before the case got started, which is so interesting. Um, and so with with Ty and Chi Mac, uh, Chi, they had been here 28 years-ish, 25, 28 years. Um, so they were naturalized citizens. You know, of the, this wasn't, you know, we just got here from China. Let's and we've given you a top secret security yeah. clearance. Great. Yeah, no, the- no, I mean, they had been here quite some time. They were naturalized citizens, you know, no behavioral issues or anything like that that would have brought anyone. You know. But what we started realizing was like, where is China getting this? you know, technology from, because we started realizing that they have it. Um, and then we found out um, that it was originating from this company. This company was the one that was developing it. And so then you start looking at, you know, who's there, who has that. So that's how how he was found. Um, but he's found, but you sort of have to catch him, right? Like you have these suspicions, but you need to build a case around him, especially because he's a naturalized citizen, right? We, we have to build a a criminal case um, around him. So so that involves, you know, a lot of what I like to call dumpster diving, which I like. You go in oh, the back. Fu- it's fun. Of, yeah, you go in the back of, of trash trucks and, you know, you go through the trash. Uh, you think that's fun? I promise you too. I didn't mind it. I enjoyed it. I, I have a pretty good attitude about most things. Uh, you know, I'm pretty positive. Um, and so I would, you know, go in the back of the truck and, get their trash, I guess. I don't know any other way to say it. And, um, you know, you go through that, see if there's anything in there. Um, gosh, gosh. And for you civil libertarians, before you start crying and hollering, the minute you throw your trash away, you have lost all expectation of privacy. It does not require, if, if the trash can is on their property, you got to have a warrant. The minute the trash is in the trash truck, sorry, pal, it's free game. Fair game. We were doing nothing illegal at all. Um, but then we did get warrants to do, um, like surreptitious entries and things like that into his home, um, when he wasn't there. And that, that was cool. Uh, you know, we sent them on a, on a cruise to Alaska, uh, you know, so that way we'd be sure that no one would. <laughs> you sent, you, you sent your targets on a cruise? Yeah, that's widely out there in the New York. No, I mean, but, but a lot of people don't realize. So how does the FBI scam these folks into taking, did they win a contest? Yes, he won. Uh, um, <laughs> of course he did. <laughs> Um, and then they sent, we, in our office, we had a, a, a married agent team. They were not on my squad. They were on a different squad, but they sent those married agents to, I mean, just keep an eye on them. It's a tough job. Somebody got to suck job. it up. And I'm take on a cruise. cruise. Yeah. <laughs> hey, let me ask you without disclosing state secrets, who's better at surreptitious century, the agency or the bureau? I, I don't want to say anything. Ah, uh, come on. Yeah. <laughs> I, I got to tell you, I've, I've worked with some bureau, and they call them black bag jobs, where yep. you're you're going in and doing those things, and uh, they were pretty damn impressive. <laughs> yeah, and you you wonder where they learn their tradecraft, and believe it or not, if you want to learn how to disguise people, you go to Hollywood like they did, you know, you find out. If you want to learn how to break in stuff, you find out people who broke into stuff for a living, right? Learn their yep. lessons. Yep. Anyway, so you can neither confirm nor deny, but I, I'm going to give the edge most likely to the agency because they had to deal with so many different things. But I will say domestically, the FBI obviously was the premier. Anyway, but they're good. They go in and do a surp- – what, what are the requirements to do – surreptitious entry is the same thing as getting a search warrant or a title three. Do you have to, you know, an electronic warrant? Do you have to meet a higher bar for surreptitious entry? Absolutely. Um, and they, they got it. Um, you know, which I think by that point we had put together so much information about them and about the case that it was not surprising, I guess, to get it, if that, that makes mm-hmm. sense. So is it just a sneak peek or are you guys actually putting uh, surveillance equipment in the house at the same time too? Yeah, we're putting surveillance equipment in the house at the same time as well. I mean, you might as well just do it all. <laughs> and if you can get the warrant to do it all, then you, you, I think that was really the goal there. 
So yeah. what did you what what did you start discovering that led you that kept going down the path of this investigation? That the all of that fun, sexy stuff got us absolutely nothing. They did nothing in their house that was did did you think we've got the wrong people? We're down the wrong path, or did you know? No, these yeah. are the ones. We just well, got to find it. Knew that those were the people, but it's funny because ultimately the way that they were discovered was through the trash. I mean, that was how the, the stuff you didn't want to do, Murph. It's in the trash. What <laughs> I tell you, people's lives. Yeah, you can watch people's got, lives in the trash. We got nothing from his house, nothing from his car, nothing from surveillance, nothing. I mean, nothing, nothing, um, until they found in the trash, folded up and ripped up, you know, in one of his trash bags. Uh, basically tasking from his handler back in China of, you know, what to collect at his job, which, I mean, that is definitely being caught red-handed. So, wow. Uh, um, and no pun intended, red-handed Chinese Communist Party. Um, but, hey, walk people through, because you've thrown some terminology <laughs> out there, and walk through, like, no, 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 It's this is this is why we love doing this stuff, because people really yeah. get the inside baseball. So a tasking list and a handler, just kind of give people what, you know, in, in perspective, what does that, what does that mean? People through it that just from like my work as, you know, working at the CIA. So as at the CIA, I'm an officer and my agents are assets, right? I handle them. I am responsible for them. I'm responsible for their safety. Um, I'm responsible for tasking them and saying, hey, John Smith, you are my asset. I pay you. You work for the CIA. I really need you to go spy on Denmark's foreign minister because I need this, this, and this information for him, from him. So that's tasking him um, to do something. And that's what we found um, from, you know, the Chinese um, CIA equivalent had basically written tasking, hey, Chi, you're working for us. We need you to get this, 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 and this from your company and then send it back to us. Was that coded? No, no kid. Wow. wow, it was in Chinese, so obviously I we couldn't read it. We didn't know what we had until we we until did somebody have, read. Um, we had an agent who um, she did not work on our squad, but she did speak fluent Chinese, and so she read it. Hey, what is your belief? Um, and I can't you you know the details of the case better. Was was uh, Chi and his wife were they turned early? Were they more like sleepers, or were they compromised at a later time? Oh no no, I think they came here twenty eight years ago with the full intention of spying. And, and wow. see, this is this is why people have to understand some of these threats, because China has a long-term view. They're not thinking the next election cycle. They're thinking- we We want things now. Yeah. 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 <laughs> They're willing to put somebody into place and start them 28 years ago. There was a, uh, a a lieutenant or a commander in the Navy that was also arrested. They did the same thing. They started recruiting him when he was like five or six and his family, and they play the long game. I think Tai and Chi Mac, I mean, you have to remember, they probably came to the U.S. late 70s, early 80s. China was still, this is probably pre-Deng Xiaoping, probably pre the loosening um, of, you know, China's heavy hand of communism, if you will. And I think they were huge Maoists. They were staunch Maoists. And they came here under the radar, right? Like just two Chinese immigrants. Why would you think anything differently about that? Right. And I, so I think they had their tasking early on. You know, there's a movie out with Angelina Jolie called Salt, S-A-L-T. Yeah. And that's, it's the Russians, not the Chinese, but it's, it's a great example of what you're describing right there, how they get them in, when they're young and then they infiltrate them in and they get to positions of trust within the government and you see what happens. Yeah. Cause she was what, like 57 when he was arrested. So I think he came here when he was like, 
2930, you know. Yeah, but again, wow. it's that long-term philosophy. They don't expect anything to happen overnight. They are planning that mm-hmm. you're going to get uh, promoted. They're planning on that you'll get a clearance. They're planning on that you'll do stuff, you know, and it's the long-term view. And they use the they use the connection to the, to the mother country. They use, you know, uh, nationalism. They use, you know— um, all of these things to indoctrinate these people to say, hey, you need to help, you know, you need to help your mother country, you need to help China do these things. So how long, how long were you involved on this case? Until I left. So what, a year and a half, two years? And what was, what, so like you say, you now walk us through, you've got the tasking list, you, you've got the, you, you, you know, do, were you able to identify the handler as well? No. Uh, you know, and the reality was, is that would have been information passed off to the CIA because his handler would have pro- would have been in China. Okay. Most likely. Um, so walk us through now how you, so now you get the tasking list. Now you, now you go, now we start getting the goods, right? Where does it go from there? Well, he was arrested actually shortly after I left. So I left and about two weeks later, he was finally arrested. Um, and he was arrested at LAX on his way out. Um, they, I know not out for good. He was out to, I think, see a dying relative, I believe. Um, and in his luggage, uh, what was, were all of these plans, um, you know, on like CDs that he was bringing back, uh, to China. That's what you call caught red handed. That was, (laughs) well, but you know, but that's the whole theory. Why do you do that? Because you want, it is very difficult to defend yourself when you actually have the goods on you and they get you leaving the country, um, I, you know how many arrests? I mean, what the FBI wanted to wait to do. I mean, could they have arrested him sooner? Yeah. But you make course. a great case, though, when you get him with the goods, getting ready to leave. You know how many arrests are made out here at Dulles Airport for the exact same thing? I mean, all the time. Yeah. All the time. And, you know, and they do. Like the one, who's the one dude he hit a, he hit a SIM card or a, a little computer chip inside a jelly sandwich. You know, that's another one of these bright ones out here. I just, it's amazing. So, hey, but I want you to speak candidly for a moment, though, too, because. Um, you do, and folks will read it in the book. We're not, we're not uh, ambushing you with this. You had some issues with the uh, bureau. I mean, it's kind of like uh, you were there, like you say, about two years and stuff. What, how, what was the decision-making process to say I need to get out of this environment, and why did you do it? Um, so I don't have it in my book, but I can tell you um, well, that I thought actually one of the things I thought maybe I was what I was looking at is the one statement you said about um, they had more uh, complaints. Against you know they had a lot of official complaints made against them uh, at the um, Equal Opportunity Commission or, or some other stuff. You mentioned that in the book. That's why I was, that I think that's what that's I was getting. Where I was at. getting to. I was just getting there in a kind of a different way. Yeah, but now give us the context. Yeah. So um, my there had been a lot that was going on, and uh, my supervisor told me I'd be a good agent on my knees under his desk. Oh, and that was when. <laughs> See, I was getting there. I mean, just does, do people, does anybody just read the news or listen, watch the internet to see how stupid that is? That is so well, unacceptable. I didn't say anything, and I had dinner with my dad that night, and um, my dad is, you know, Vietnam War vet, but he's a psychologist and he's 6'4", you know, like just, and my dad flipped out. He never flips out, but flipped out. He's like, you need to lodge a complaint. And so I actually did. Um, and their solution um, was to promote my supervisor and move me to an office about five hours away with no moving. What did I just say? Mm-hmm. Screw up and move up. And the person yeah. who makes the complaint gets <laughs> penalized, gets transferred. <laughs> and so I could have considered, you know, following the complaint, but I just laughed at that point. I think I was just, 
done. <laughs> that, uh, well, and on top of that, if you're more than 50 miles away from your home office, you're entitled to per diem. And if they're, if it's a five hours, that's a PCS. That's a permanent change of station. That's a move. And they're not going to fund that for you. Jeez. That's, <laughs> it's called being punitive. Uh, well, absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, well, you know, the other thing I'm, I would be more scared of, too, you were just describing your dad as the father of a daughter, too. It's one of the things to where you want to saddle up and you want to go handle it. But, you know, you can't because your kids are grown up. They can fight their own battles. But still, as a father, you want oh, yeah. to go in and kick somebody's ass and uh, take names and uh, sort this whole thing out. So did you talk your dad off the ledge? Did you keep him from going down? Oh, he would never. My dad is a very, like, do the right thing, you know, kind of person. But that's why when he did get so upset, because he doesn't get so upset, he's very quiet. Um, that's when I knew it was wrong. Do you know it was like, serious? Yeah, I guess is what I'm saying. I mean, in what universe do you say something like that? Uh, I just... Well, because he probably never have... He's never been called on it before. He's been able to get away with it. No, he had been moved from another office because he was a problem there oh, as well. Oh, well... <laughs> It gets get better and better. Oh, oh my it? God. We're digging a deeper <laughs> hole here for this dude. Is this one that you would like to name publicly for everybody no, to know? No. no. Uh, well, it'd be easy to find. We'll just go dig out the the complaint. It'll be in there. Ah, open source. <laughs> I just got to love Al Gore's amazing internet, man. There's so many things on there. But no, we, we don't we do not do name and shame on the show. That's that's not... Uh, there's, our, no, there's no point. No, no. the thing is because it takes away from the focus, which is talking about your amazing, your incredible story. I mean... As a taxpayer, let me tell you what, I want to salute you and, and say thank you because you did yeah. stuff. You went to shithole countries and places nobody would want to go and lived under the worst conditions. I, I, I read the part about having to go. You handed the guy, he said, where's the bathroom? And you handed him a, a can. Here you go. <laughs> Here's a bucket. The bathroom is the bucket. Yes. Yeah. I mean, yeah. imagine living like that for a couple months at a time. I mean, that had, but you know what? But Based on, and so I want to bring this full circle now to, like we started off, you got your dream job back. You wanted to go into teaching and now you're teaching. How much different are you, uh, let's talk about where you're teaching at and let's talk about then the second part is how much different of a teacher are you because of the experiences you had instead of had you gone directly into teaching? Yeah. So I went and got my master's in education and I always say that this the CIA taught me what I want to teach and the FBI taught me who I want to teach. And so um, I started realizing, wow, <laughs> only 25% of jobs in national security are held by women and only about 19% of special agents of the FBI are women. And I don't think I even realized, which sounds so ignorant, that, you know, women couldn't even be special agents of the FBI until 1972. Like that's... Jay Edgar ran that place with an iron fist. You know, I was born in the 70s. That's not that long ago. And so I think, you know, the only way to change that, quite frankly, and to bring more women to the table, I think we need the men too, but to bring more, you know, gender equity is to start from the ground up. So um, I started teaching high school, but then I started realizing we kind of have a gap in terms of students' knowledge of globalization, students' knowledge of international affairs, those kinds of things. And I, I created a class on that. Um, for all girls, and so that's what I do. Awesome. So, and, uh, and, and how old your how old are your students? High school. High school. Mm -hmm. uh, and is this a is this an all girls school? I do now. I teach at an all girls school. I used to teach co-ed. Now I teach all girls, and then I also teach um, criminal justice at the college level too. Wow. Can you say which? Can you say which college? No. 
Sorry, I'd have to run it by them first. And I no problem. honestly forgot. That's okay. Well, this, it'll be a college within somewhat of driving distance of your house. So we can kind of nerd. Yeah. Really <laughs> hey, um, one thing I did want to talk to you about, though, um, and this is what spurred me because I, this is why I reached out to you and I saw your comment. Good friend of mine is the chief of police in Colleyville, uh, Mike Miller. And I've known Mike for a long time. And my friend was the chief of police before that. Uh, and he became the chief over at uh, Grand Prairie, Texas, Steve Dye. So, I mean, I, I've been out to Colleyville several times. What a great area. You're not too far from there. And we, Steve and I did a special episode on uh, on the on the attack uh, on the temple there. So did when you heard about that, because I know you talked about it in your book too, uh, and one of the stories that you talked about was when you heard about or read about a guy that walked into a temple and shot up people. There were like 70 casings there. You know, you started realizing the violence. Did did that did it cause you an inordinate amount of concern? Were you concerned for your kids too? I mean, everybody's parents, but did you think, is this the start of something? Or because of your background, did you look at it and go, man, this, I mean, this is isolated. It's probably not part of a bigger thing. What was your thought process with your unique insight when this was going on not too far from your house at, you know, at a temple? I don't think it's isolated at all. And it's one of the reasons I don't have my daughter in Hebrew school right now uh, is because I do not think the temple I go to takes security seriously um, enough. So. But when that, when that happened, um, did any, I mean, just give me your thoughts when you saw this going on with the events unfolding in Colleyville, what was, what were you thinking of? I mean, I wasn't, um, I was just more thinking of like how I think people don't realize that synagogues are such targets, right? I think we forget, uh, sometimes that, you know, certain places of worship are, are targets. Um, I knew that this was a terrorist attack. I, I did. Um, I knew that it probably had something to do with Al-Qaeda. I didn't, I didn't see it as sort of a domestic terrorism kind of thing. Yeah. And the, the original, uh, special agent in charge out there had to walk back some of his comments because he made it seem like there was no link to terrorism. Now this is just a guy mm-hmm. who was a goofball. I'm not really sure where that would have come from, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> I would, uh, you know, I speculated maybe on his defense a little bit that, that maybe he was reiterating what he was told to reiterate by his headquarters. He could have been, I mean, who knows? But but a special agent charge has a lot of leeway what he can say to the press. A sack a sack pretty much can run there. I mean, it's like you don't really yeah. micromanage a sack, right? Yeah. Right. But you know, but on the, but but Steve, you know, Steve and I also did a special episode on this on Colleyville, and the one stat I think that's the other thing too is I think it's part of the awareness. People hear the narrative is maybe about other groups, but the fact is when you look at the FBI statistics. Crimes against the Jewish people, hate crimes in the United States, constitute more than all the other groups combined, basically, when you look at the number of incidents each and every year. And I'm just kind of curious your thoughts. Why do you think it's not getting that kind of attention? Because, you know, look, if if somebody defaces a mosque or burns down a mosque, it's for some reason, it's like huge news. But we seem to forget is that it's the temples, it's the synagogues, it's the it's the Jewish people, the, the, the Jews, the people who are identified as Jews, the religious groups that have more hate crimes targeted against them than any other group in America. What, what's the issue? Why is, why is everybody missing this? It's a hard question to, to answer without being uncomfortable about answering it. Um, I think it's kind of always been that way. Um, we've sort of always been this like acceptable scapegoat, if you will. Um, 
I don't know anything else. I don't I don't know how else I want to say it in a way that I'm comfortable. I'm sorry. No, you don't have to apologize. I mean, that's one of the just you were in a unique position for a lot of reasons because your background, your work, where you lived and where this happened at, you know, and your background, your faith. So I've, it's more just I'm just to this day, I'm continuously flummoxed as to why. Um, right. This doesn't get the level of attention that it needs. It's like, Steve, it's like we talk about fentanyl. I mean, how long has people like Derek Maltz and other people been talking about the fentanyl uh, problem? 100,000 people killed last year, and it's like it, 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 it takes too many people dying to get somebody's attention to say, we got to fix this I mean, problem. I guess I would have thought with 6 million people dying in the Holocaust. Right. <laughs> that, that would have been um, – but you have to remember, like, during the Holocaust, it's not like the U.S. was kind to Jews. Like, we didn't let them in. So, you know, I think we've kind of always had this, this trope here, I guess. Um, and I think, you know, because it's a religion, because it's not a race, um, you know, it's a hard, hard thing. I think the Jews are even split, too, on how it should be handled. And I think that's problematic um, as well. You know, yeah. I, I hate to use the words of Joseph Stalin, but he, he kind of he encapsulated when he said, look, a thousand deaths is a tragedy, a million deaths is a statistic. Mm -hmm. And you get to a certain point where it just becomes a, a statistic, you lose the impact. My dad was a World War II vet and, and a Vietnam vet, and I'm, I'm a huge student uh, of history, especially World War II. And, you know, and you're right when you read, the, you know, even from the internment of the Japanese, you know, here in the United States, so many people made mistakes. But how, uh, you yeah, know, again, yeah, if, if six million isn't a number that you're comfortable with, well, then uh, maybe we're having the wrong discussion because I think that's. that's I don't understand. <laughs> I, it's very odd to me. And I feel like it's kind of like how I feel. And again, I don't I don't mean to get political, but I've always said this. I, I do support the Second Amendment. I mean, I have gone like I, I don't have any issues with it. But people always ask me, like, when do you think some kind of like sensible gun control will happen? And I always say never. Um, and they're like, why? And I said, because when people were okay with, you know, 35-year-olds being killed in Sandy Hook, um, you know, I think that that just kind of shows you that we're okay with it. We have a certain level of like, we're comfortable with this. And so I think that's kind of how we 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 look at at the anti-semitism as well we're we're comfortable with it which is a shame. You know, the, the fact that there are, are groups out there here in the United States as well as other parts of the world that that try to create the idea that the Holocaust was all made up, that it never happened. How ridiculous. Well, and then you have and again, I don't mean to get political, but it bothered me. You know, you have Whippy Goldberg saying that it wasn't about race. <laughs> like a couple weeks ago. And I don't understand how that's acceptable either because it was about race. Hitler created race charts of what he thought Jews looked like, you know? And so I think it's just crazy to me. Well, he also he created, he's created the stereotype of what a German should look like, should have blonde hair, and blue I eyes. Actually, I'm a German Jew. So like, what does that mean? <laughs> well, and that's you funny know, coming from Wolpe Goldberg. If we talk about cultural appropriation, her original name was Karen Elaine, Karen, Karen Elaine Johnson. She came up, Whoopi Goldberg, and, uh, you know, I just, I'm, so I have to tell you, not getting political, but, I, you know, I'm like, when we got our two cats uh, from a rescue shelter at the uh, ASPCA, they, they're, I mean, they're my little babies now, and Steve's seen them, but they were named Ellen and Oprah. I said, uh-uh. I said, I'm renaming our cats, and now they're Fanny and Rosebud, so. uh Aww. 
No, but yeah, I wanted to name them too. I mean, these are mine. And the reason we call her Fanny is so much white on her face. It looks like Phantom of the Opera. So I said, okay, Fanny, we call oh, you Fanny. Fanny. But, but I, just, I just thought it was amazing is that she, her name used to be Karen Johnson and now it's Whoopi Goldberg. And she, if that's not cultural appropriation, I mean, what is? I just think with the Jews, it's hard because we are not theoretically like a disenfranchised group here. And so I think sometimes it's thought that like we don't need assistance, right? And I think that's... Well, and it's those tropes to say, well, the Jews run the banks, the Jews run Hollywood, the Jews run this. Oh my God, if that was the case, the Middle East would be peaceful. There'd be no issues there. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, please. I'll tell you, one of the best trips I ever made, and it was was always on my bucket list to do it, I had the chance. I went over to Tel Aviv and Jerusalem and went through uh, Jerusalem and went to the the wall and uh, put on the Yarmulka. I used to say it wrong. I said Yamaka, and it's like no, Yarmulka. I, but I, you know, but went to the, uh, the the Wailing Wall, put my little note in there, and I mean, it just. I, I'm a few like said that the history. I grew up in Iran for three years too. My dad was military, so during the days of the Shah, you know, have always appreciated history and stuff. But what I mean, just. And I didn't realize this, too, about how fantastic not only the olives and the wine were, but they quit making wine for a long time because uh, of issues from occupation and everything else. But the wine over in that region for so many years, for a couple hundred years, was like some of the best out there. It just, oh, good stuff. Anyway, I digress. But anyway, look, let's let's kind of bring this to a close. Any any parting words, any last words? Like, Because I think one of the things you're doing is very admirable. We, we need to diversify the way we think about things. Um, Steve and I both believe if women ran more of the country, there'd be fewer fights, <laughs> you know? Well, I think we, my biggest takeaway is to, is to listen. You know, I think because a lot of times you see even women will go on these like tirades, right? About how we can't have men at all at the table. Like, no, I don't think that's good either. We don't want to overcorrect, right? In one direction. And I think, yes, I want to bring more women to the table, but it, it needs to be more 50-50, not like 90-10 or, you know, like the, and so I think um, it, it's, this polarization is very frustrating to me and the politicalization of espionage and foreign policy is also very frustrating to me. Um, and so I'd kind of would like to see us move away uh, from that a little bit if we could. Um, but that's, I think my parting words. I don't think that's an unreasonable request either. If you can do the job, it doesn't matter if you're a male or female. It doesn't matter what color you are. It doesn't matter your ethnic group. If you're willing to do the job and and especially serve your country, this should all be equitable. You know, we're we're with you 100 percent here, Tracy. And the hardships you had to have in some of these foreign countries where you couldn't get your nails done in the proper sorority way, it had to be traumatizing. <laughs> there goes that male sexist thing. I'm, nah, I'm working with him, Tracy. Oh, I'm sorry. Please. <laughs> She's got a good sense of humor. She's the one that wrote in her book about touching up her roots. You know, I had to get to root yeah. Yeah. It's fun. Now, hey, look, but this is us. The folks can't see it, but this is us saluting you. And really, Thank as an American, you. as a not just as a taxpayer, but as an American citizen, you know, we appreciate the sacrifice anybody makes on behalf of serving our country, and especially the way you Absolutely. did. Uh, undying uh, gratitude and admiration. And by the way, folks, don't forget. You can get her book. You got to go get her book. And uh, just you, hey, look, I talked about your book. You tell people real quickly about your book, and we'll end on that. The Unexpected Spy. Um, my, my book is really just about my life and my journey, um, really from birth to now, um, sort of 
what it's like. It, it's a very real read. It reads a little bit differently than a lot of the other kind of books written by former FBI and CIA folks. It's definitely more narrative. Um, but I do think that both men and women uh, will really, really enjoy it. And you got somebody, I want you to, you got somebody pretty famous to write uh, a quote for you on the book, Ellen Pompeo. Some of folks may know her as Dr. Meredith Gray on Gray's Anatomy. How did you score that? That is like, she was like, she likes killing it on TV. She's like one of the highest paid people in the industry. I just saw her pay, I saw her pay scale. She gets 500,000 an episode plus 6 million a year of the, you know, the syndication rights. She's, she's crushing it. How did you get that? Um, she originally had bought the life rights to my book. Wow. Is this so going to be, did, is does movie she stuff? contact you? Does she contact you or go through your agent or how'd she do that? Uh, she went through my agent. But then you got to meet her? Mm-hmm. Wow. That's pretty cool. Is this going to be a movie? Mm-hmm. Not sure. Okay. Who's going to play you in, if it's a movie, who's going to play you in the movie? Oh gosh, I have who no do you, idea. You get to pick. Who do you want to play you in the movie? I wouldn't know. I don't watch movies, so I really don't know who kind of the young, you know, actors, actresses are today. I'm sorry. Oh, yeah, that's, she's my wife's favorite actor. She loves Grey's Anatomy. I've met Ellen several times. That's cool. Oh, wow. What a, what a small world. I've never met her, but I've I've seen her on TV so many times. I feel like we're so close. <laughs> well, hey, look, Tracy, thank you so much. I know you've got a six-year-old plus ice plus all this other stuff to deal with, but we want to thank you for spending your time with us this morning. Again, us saluting you. Thank you so very much. Thank you guys so much for all you've done. And I really do appreciate you having me on. It's been super fun. Our honor to have you on here. Thanks for giving us your time. Okay, everybody, Thanks, stay Bye. tuned for the debrief. Well, you know, I edited some of the stuff out because her six-year-old daughter <laughs> was coming in. That was the good part. I know, but I was, I was it was hard to keep that in there and, and, you know, make it sound coherent. I was going to leave it in, but just let me tell you, it finally got down to the point. She says what every parent says. It's like 14 degrees there in Texas at the time we were recording this. And, like, she wanted to go out in shorts. Fine. Go out. You want to die? That's up to you. Just fine. Go. <laughs> that was the best part of the interview. But, you know, that, that shows you. I mean, here you're talking about a CIA operative who then becomes – you know, going to be a counter-terrorist FBI agent, and she's still got to deal with the home life of being a mom. You know, it's it just shows you we're just normal people. There's nothing special about Well, it shows about you the problem else. with parents like you and me, even Steve. We, we could go and take down bad guys and bad girls all day long, but a six-year-old plants her feet and says, no, I want to wear my shorts. Well, fine, whatever. Just go yeah. do it. <laughs> <laughs> that was hilarious. That was, that was, uh, uh, that was really nice. But you know, but you got it. The other thing too, is just the, the dedication of people like her who back then who had a choice, she had, and I say this, even though I love Notre Dame, but great school. USC is a great school. She's getting a great education. She could have done a lot of things. Instead, she chose to serve her country, chose to serve it in shithole places. She wouldn't say some of the places, right. uh, the publication review board and her non-disclosures don't allow her to talk about some of the countries. But I guarantee you, it wasn't the, you know, it wasn't the, uh, by the Seine River in France and it wasn't at the hot spots, you know, in uh, Belgium and uh, places oh, yeah. like that. Let me These tell were, you. It was These were African countries and Middle East countries. It was probably a place called Ashkrakistan, and you can figure <laughs> out where that is yourselves. But you know, it's the her. armpit of Africa and the Middle East. <laughs> well, and and you heard us vent about this a little bit during the interview. But the way 
the Bureau treated her when she came into the academy. Shame on you guys. For 18 yeah. months on the job, absolutely, that was that was uh, unconscionable. That it, you treat anybody like that. That You had access to her files. You could have verified what she said, but you didn't take the freaking time to do it. Shame on you. I hope you're all retired or quit and went and got some shit job. Yeah, yeah. Again, we go back to it's. You hate. There are people in there, and it was a culture. And look, we we both have a lot of friends from the bureau. We both, but the the way you treat, you don't treat people like this, especially Steve. People who serve their country the way she did, right? And what she did. It to your point, I agree with you, man. Unconscionable. Yeah. But now that we've got that off our chest, <sighs> okay, we're better. So if you, if you feel better, we feel better. Head on over to Apple and Spotify and show how good you feel now, which is five star worthy. I think that was five star worthy. The episode yeah. definitely Tracy was five star worthy. So oh, hit those time. magic stars. Yeah, hit those magic stars. Head on over to GameOfCrimesPodcast.com for more info about the show. We'll be updating it as we go along. Follow us on the social media at Game of Crimes on Twitter at Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. PayPal.com. Use our email, gameofcrimespodcast at gmail.com or paypal.me slash gameofcrimes, whatever it makes it easier for you to support the show, bring you more exciting content, but definitely head on over to patreon.com slash gameofcrimes. We, we, we really, this last episode two of 911, uh, what's your emergency? We've got some great stuff coming up. We've got some great episodes coming up. So you just got to be there. You got to figure out if Steve is going to get, Steve is, he's one uh, he's one and one right now. So yeah. he got a five, you know, 500, not bad. If it was baseball, if two, two times at the plate, you got a 500 batting average, but yeah, well, they'd cancel we'll that too. They'd just cancel me right out is what would happen. Just like they're doing with baseball. <laughs> <laughs> hey, but guys, before we leave though, you got to go visit Tracy's site, Tracy Walder. That's T R A C Y W A L D E R Tracy Walder.com. You got to get her book, the unexpected spy from the CIA to the FBI, my secret life, taking down some of the world's most notorious terrorists. You got to do that. Let's support our people who come onto the show, you know, and uh, you guys just stay tuned because like I said, next week, uh, we don't know, we haven't been announcing this, but it's in the queue. So uh, Billy Sarukas, but I'll tell you what's interesting about this, Steve, though, we're going to give people a view. So we've had Jeff Nice on talking about the takedown of the DC sniper. We had Aaron on talking about Aaron Turner on talking about the technology and some of the stuff they did behind it. And now we're going to get the person who did he, he he gives a lot of credit but if you want to find out how they found out about the car how they found out their real names what they did to finally come up with the license plate that allowed Jeff Nice and his buddies on the SWAT team to go get these guys got to tune in this and this you're going to get the I mean you talk about getting it from the horse's mouth this is the man you don't want to miss this one and he's got a book out too called Chasing Evil which we'll talk about so but anyway we want to thank you once again, players and playerettes, for playing the most dangerous game of all. I should say the biggest, baddest, most dangerous game of all. Badass. The game. Badass, that's right. Yeah. As, you, as this episode attests to. So thank you for playing it, The Game of Crimes. Crimes.